This is Ethnic Stew, a new podcast on race and ethnic relations from the standpoint of parents and grandparents of biracial children. Here are your hosts, John Glavin, J.P. Kendall, and Jill Kendrick. The idea behind Ethnic Stew has been rolling around in my head in one form or another for the last few years. About five years ago, our family of two became a family of six when my wife's parents and two of their grandchildren moved into our little town in Tennessee. My wife and I had moved shortly before from northern Michigan on the Canadian border to be halfway between her aging parents in North Tennessee and our son's family in north suburban Atlanta. Our two nieces, now our girls, they're biracial. And in my mid-50s, my wife in her early 50s, we again embraced the role of parents. And we helped lighten the load for my in-laws, who could then concentrate on being grandma and grandpa again. It's been a good transition for all of us, and we've all enjoyed watching the girls thrive. Soon, I found my paradigm shifting, as they say, and I realized I needed to begin looking at the world with a different set of eyes, especially after we began to hear the names Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Freddie Gray, and the names keep coming. Now, before you might get your hackles up and take a side in defending the police or questioning them, please just take a breath. Let me complete my thoughts. As a now 60-plus-year-old white guy, I was saddened by events, but beyond that, it hit me. I'm responsible for preparing two biracial girls, now 10 and 11, to become adults. I like to think I'm doing a good job so far, but as the girls begin to question the color of their skin, how they fit in the world, and as they become aware of the occasional odd looks from folks, some black, some white, as we as a family go about our business, as they notice in the media, and they already have, that a hell of a lot of people who run afoul of the law are black, how do I help them? What do I tell them? How do I, while insisting that they respect police and encourage them to look to law enforcement when they feel frightened or in need of assistance, how do I explain that Philando Castile was killed in his own car in front of his girlfriend during a traffic stop after he volunteered that he had a legal firearm in his car? Or how Botham Jean was sitting in his own apartment eating ice cream when a policewoman entered, thinking it was her own apartment, and shot and killed him. Or Brianna Taylor, who was shot in her bed by plainclothes police, who took fire while executing a search warrant without announcing themselves. The fire coming from the registered firearm of Taylor's boyfriend, who believed the police to be burglars. Unfortunately, we know I could continue this sad list. But here's my point. There are many people who, because of these incidences, are afraid of the police. And there are a lot of people who believe that, had the victims reacted differently, the police would never have used their weapons. And until this whole issue is frankly discussed, what am I going to tell my girls? What do I say that creates the balance between being respectful of the law while being aware that the color of their skin might come into play with any interactions that they have with police. Now, I understand everybody has opinion, but I also know we're not talking with each other about it. We're talking past each other, and things just don't get resolved that way. And I know that, unfortunately, I 
don't truly understand what it's like to live as a black man or an Hispanic or an Asian or any other non-Caucasian in the U.S. I do my best, but I'm limited by my own experiences. It also might surprise some people that I don't believe that they know what it's like to be a 60-year-old white man. I don't believe I'm alone in fearing that during the discussion, in trying to understand, I might say something out of ignorance that could offend, especially in light of part of society that embraces cancel culture, in which forgiveness is forgotten, that a comment made out of ignorance could end a career. I know to some that appears to be a light burden, but please understand I'm just trying to explain myself, because ultimately, I mean no harm. I want to understand and learn, and I believe I'm not alone. I constantly read and hear that white people are too afraid or uncomfortable to have a truly honest conversation about race. Now that I agree with 100%. We all live in our own lives with our own experiences, where we live, who we work with, who we interact with daily. We form opinions based in part by our media and entertainment choices. Then you add the echo chamber of social media and the result, society values opinion over reflection. With that in mind, I believe there was a need for a podcast about race, one rooted in conversations. Those uncomfortable conversations I hear and read are needed, not looking to point fingers or to blame, but to learn and understand. So I contacted a black friend from high school I reconnected with via Facebook, J.P. Kendall. I've always had a lot of respect for J.P. He was a stand-up guy in school, and I saw through Facebook he had a great family and is justifiably proud of his kids. When we connected, he happened to be in the company of another friend of ours, Jill Bradley Kendrick, fellow classmate, mother and grandmother of biracial children. Now, I remembered her as one you could count on, kind of a level-headed and open-minded person. Are the three of us perfect? Two answers. No and hell no. We've all had too many divorces between us. We try our best to learn from our mistakes, but in short, we're human. So I outlined my ideas. They both embraced them and improved upon them. And here we are, the three of us, all with our own opinions and experiences our own ethnic stew. Once a month, and hopefully soon every two weeks, we'll attempt to have these uncomfortable conversations. And soon we'll add other people to the conversation. We'll play devil's advocate with each other. Things might get a little chippy, but we're also going to have some fun too, because while we're tackling a serious subject, if we take ourselves too seriously, we lose an important part of our humanity. And the three of us like to laugh. Again, we're human. And while I'm not arrogant enough to think that we'll change race relations, I hope we can get the conversation underway. So let's get to it. We're going to begin our first podcast uh, talking about the hometown of the three of us, which is Lafayette in West Central Indiana. Purdue University is right across the river in West Lafayette. Indianapolis is about an hour away south and to the east. Chicago is northwest, about 90 minutes away. Um, thanks to Catherine Springer from the Indiana State Data Center of the Indiana State Library for helping getting us these numbers. Uh, 
back about the time that the three of us were born, about 1960, Lafayette was 98% white, 2% non-white. And of those 2%, uh, 90% of that minority was black. And really, statistically, things didn't change much until the late 80s, uh, which was about the time that uh, we graduated. And uh, in 1990, uh, blacks were just a shade over 2% of the population in Lafayette, and Hispanics were 1.6%. In 2000, blacks were just a little over 3% of the population, and Hispanics were 9%. And the latest numbers that we have available to us in 2010, blacks were 11% of the population, Hispanics 16% of the population. So uh, beginning in the 90s, Lafayette began changing racially, especially large Hispanic growth, but also in the growth of blacks. Um, 2010, Lafayette, over 25% people of color. And uh, at the same time, that we were in high school, late 70s minorities made up just a sliver of that population. And soon after that, uh, it began to grow. So uh, at the time that we were in high school, how aware were you two of race differences in everyday life? I was conscious of it uh, due to the fact that the neighborhood that I grew up in was around down by the St. E hospital area. Predominantly, that area was uh, was considered the black section of town, and that was one of the reasons why we were there. Because I I remember my uncle saying that when he tried to find a house in Lafayette, nobody wanted to sell one to him, so he built one in West Lafayette, and that was around seventy one, I believe. But I was not conscious of the Hispanic population. That's you know it was that was quite a big population and but i don't remember really being around any hispanic people that often now i know my, my mom and uh had worked with some some hispanic people and we've had spatterings we would see them but i didn't really i was not really aware of the hispanic population around the north uh or south end you know on the wabash avenue area you know it was like enter your own risk but that was for blacks and whites. That was just a different mindset down there. We pretty much went wherever we wanted to go. Um, and then, you know, we would have situations where, you know, somebody would drive by and say something, you know, would, you know, to call you the N word or whatever. It's not particularly a, a Lafayette problem. It's a, just an ignorant people problem. I don't think I realized that there was a, a great divide, or I don't think I felt that because in our family, it was told from the very beginning from when I was in kindergarten, which would have been what, 1966, maybe that you like everybody and everybody, you know, unless they give you a reason not to, you don't judge based on the color of their hair, their skin, where they go to church. So I guess I just thought that and I never realized there was a problem. Even at high school, I never even thought to ask JP if it was ever weird or different or if he felt any kind of way about it because I just didn't think it was anything. I didn't think it was odd or out of the ordinary or felt weird. or. And the, the concept of race baiting or, or calling anybody the N-word back then, I mean, it, it never occurred to me that it would be said 
or that anybody in school would say that. And I don't remember. I don't remember. And then I wonder, is it just because of ignorance? Like it was there and I just didn't see it or hear it? Well, definitely not in grade school. But you got to remember the 60s was the height of social change. The uh, old guard was changing because of the civil rights movement. People that ordinarily probably wouldn't be conscious of it. You know, that reality was brought smack dab in the face. But anytime that there's change, they're going to be people resistant to change. Absolutely. I remember distinctly this question put to me as, well, we were always taught to say colored people, not black people. I distinctly remember that social change where black people stopped being colored people and we became black people, you know, and I'm like, Okay. Yeah. You know, the Civil Rights Act and things like that, you know, it was like we were what, four years old and like uh, eight, eight, mm-hmm. 68, you know, that's been in our lifetime. So the progression of change was doing our upbringing. So I think we were really the kind of the first generation conscious of the whole social chain, older black people did not grip that because I remember uh, they didn't get into that because it was scary to them. They thought that that was going to bring a lot of strife down on them. And they would say, well, I don't play that. I always remember hearing people saying that uh, black power era. And I remember distinctly remember older black people say, don't call me that. I, I don't play that. I, you know, I'm a Baptist. So it was kind of a confusing time for some of us younger black kids. I kind of was in an idyllic environment because we would have white kids at our house eating just as well as me being over, going over their house eating. And, you know, we just ran up and down the street and we just played with one another. And I remember a story one time where um, we had these black kids come down from Chicago and they want to rough up one of the white kids. We didn't go over there to defend this white kid as a black or white thing. We went over to defend him because he was our friend, period. And I always remember this, the one kid from Chicago saying, why are you defending that, that white boy, you know? And my brother saying, those are our white people. <laughs> and, you know, so yeah. it was like, you don't mess with the guys in our neighborhood. And that's where we were brought up. Now, as I grow up and, you know, and experience other things, and, you know, I realized that at that time, that was a unique, with all the racial you know, uh, things going on. Yeah, because that's like, I'm thinking just now when you said that, I think we did grow up in a unique time period. Yeah. Because there was change. We were probably told by our parents, look, this is the way it's going to be. They're going to be these kids in your class, these kids in your class. That's just how it's going to be. And it was more community neighborhood based. Right. And you were friends and protected with the kids who were immediately in your area. And now I don't think the kids really experience that. The kids of today I sound really old, but the kids of today don't have that sense of community with just their neighborhood. Right. Because their world is now everything that's on the Internet. We only had what we were told. You know, I think about news now. Sometimes you hear it the moment it happens. Right. So, you know, we get so much information so fast. People end up manipulating that information. People are all, they're confused again. But back in our day, it was just whatever happened on your street. Things would happen 
and you wouldn't have someone immediately interpreting it for you. Right. You know, now it's something happens and then immediately everybody in total ignorance right. puts their two cents in as to what this happening actually means. Right. It's, they send it to their agenda. Well, and I'll give oh, yeah. You, I'll give yeah. You, yeah. John, do you think because you live, I lived in an older neighborhood over by where I went to grade school. JP lived in an older neighborhood. I don't really know where you did grow up, which neighborhood, where what, where you lived. I don't know that. We joked earlier when we started talking about the concept of the of the podcast that the town that we grew up in was Wonder Bread. I, I was in the capital of Wonder Bread City. There were no blacks in the T- Tecumseh area. And and it's funny, the first time I, re- I distinctly remember playing basketball in sixth grade, and we played... Linwood Elementary. Okay. Uh, the whole team was black, and we beat them. Um, and afterwards, it was the very first time that I thought that, that I was nervous because a couple of the players kind of just walked up and glared up at me. I was still taller than them, but you know, and I thought, okay, I shouldn't be scared. I'm in my own school. Why am I scared? Just such a stupid feeling. You know, 11 or 12 years old, what's the deal? But you know, that's that's kind of... Um, Fear of the unknown. Yeah, and it, that really strikes a chord to me because you didn't know at 12, but something in you, you either heard, seen, or something made you think, this is weird, or I feel intimidated, or whatever the word. I've always said, I believe prejudice and that is learned if they learn behavior you don't know what you don't know till you don't know it and my mother she grew up in a in a a small village in southwest michigan and by small i mean like four or five hundred people and their next door neighbors were black and there are these little little communities up there that are the remnants of uh, runaway slaves like yeah cassopolis and uh covert these rural black communities that have their and their heritage is from people who come uh, came up uh, through the Underground Railroad. And then, of course, they were further populated after the Civil War. So my mother grew up with this family and loved them. As a matter of fact, when she began dating my uh, father, one of the first things she did was take him next door to meet them. I think their name was Anderson, but it was like, if you like the Andersons, then this is going to work out. Yeah. And dad, of course, knew it was good for him and he said he (laughs) loved him. But, but after they got married and my sister was born, this was when my father was, was on the road a lot. So my mother and sister lived with mom's mom. So my sister just, these were the Andersons, you know, right. But, but typical of little kids, one spring, at this big parade, there was the, the marching band from Cassopolis, completely black, goes by. And mom's holding my sister. And my sister says, Mom, look at all the Andersons. <laughs> so that's how I grew up. So Lafayette was much, much more sheltered. Well, JP, you talked about the, the guys that came down from Chicago. I was struck. Their idea of the team and yours is a totally right. different definition. Right. It's on their life. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, well, and it goes back to um, dealing with the unknown, where they came from, 
they were taught to fear and dislike whites as same as, you know, somebody from the South anywhere where, you know, we're trained to dislike blacks. For what reason? We're just told not to stay away from them and whatnot. Uh, I remember going to Miami, Florida. Uh, my dad had a, a friend there that he grew up with. And they his we called him Uncle Dyke, but he wasn't our uncle. I particularly remember when we would go places when we were down in Miami, they hated Haitians. And he would always say, stay away from them damn Haitians. The only difference was their culture because they were black. They were dark skinned just like we are. Very tribal. Right. Very tribal. When I was in the Marine Corps, I learned the Puerto Rican people and the, and the Mexican people yes. did not get along. I got my ears pinned back a couple of times for saying, making, you know, remarks I didn't necessarily know. But, you know, when they explained it to me, I understood to a certain point why they felt that way, but not to the point of, you know, being as angry and hateful as they were about it. But the Puerto Ricans say, you know, number one, we don't all look alike. Number two, we're U.S. citizens. They are not. And there were a lot of, of Americans who still don't understand that Puerto Ricans are right. American citizens. Right, <laughs> right. And that's uh, really sad. Well, we got a pretty good start in us understanding our background Anybody who's listening in can understand our background. And from here, we can move forward and hopefully bring a little bit of understanding, bridge a couple of gaps, because I think a lot of the the discourse ends up becoming political so fast. You can't put down an entire group of people because of one person or one group of people. Any Any more that you could say... Either, and I'll bring up, you know, that Biden's supporters are communists or Trump, Trump, all Trump supporters were the guys who, you know, January 6th stormed Congress. Right. Hopefully we can kind of help to begin that conversation and get some some guards put down. Right. You know, because the thing about it is you look at something and you know it's all fuckered up. (laughs) <laughs> and my thing is, you know, instead of just, you know, that person, it's it's in your mindset, it's wrong. I would just like to know, how did you get to that way of thinking by letting that person explain himself? Maybe I can understand how they got there. how they got there, because that is the puzzling part. You know, you'll never get across that that bridge if the bridge is out. It's, you know, you say, well, the bridge is out, but why is that bridge is out? Because why would we build another one if that problem's going to recur again? So let's find out how that bridge got tore down and we'll figure out how to build it back better so it doesn't happen again. But if it doesn't, if we can't get it fixed, you know, we know that we'll have to take another alternative method of, of trying to get things figured out because you know, some of the, the things that people, you know, like attacking these people are attacking the flight attendants yeah. and things like that. How do you get to that point where, you know, maybe said like they've had like close to 5,000 uh, accounts of this, you know, through this pandemic and stuff. What is going to people's minds to make them think that that's all right? What gives me the right because somebody who obviously is not qualified to even make that statement will say that and they know what they're doing. But what gives me the right to go and strike somebody because saying that, you know, you brought uh, the only county you and your people, we have, you know, this pandemic. 
The guy's been in Lafayette all his life. You know, just because he's Asian doesn't mean he had anything to do with China. So, you know, I would like to find more people so I can kind of halfway understand where they come from. And why why the anger? And the anger. And the hate. The hate. Hate's a strong word. I used to say that all the time. Yeah. Hate's a very strong word. I try not to use hate very often because, and and I often have said I could be totally flawed, but I've often said, you can't hate something you didn't love. Exactly. I, I think they have to be. Oh, you don't know about. To me, they're the two opposites. So if you don't have some good feeling about it or you didn't think some way about it, how can you hate it? You could dislike it. You cannot understand it. But to say how much you hate it, you abhor it, you want to go to war over something, some part of that has had to have a deeper meaning to you at some other point in time. That's or. Or someone has been feeding you. Feeding you, right. right. Wrong information, but I think I think when it comes down to saying, oh, like, I, I hate Asians, or I hate, I mean, here in Lafayette, yeah. I don't know, John, you may know this, the Hispanic population has had a hard time here at times. Right. People say, oh, they're taking all of our jobs, oh, they're doing this, oh, they're doing that, they need to go back to where they came from, kind of like what you said before, but some of them are born and raised here, but because their parents still speak totally Spanish, they still have a strong accent. People will say, you need to go back home. Well, I'm born, I'm born here. I was born well, here. Well, yeah. Here, you know, and you still have people here thinking. The American Indians are saying the same thing about us. Yeah. But how do you hate somebody that you really don't know? Well, and, it's, and hate is irrational. Let's face right. it. It always killed me, the, the people who, on one hand, said they're taking our jobs, but then in the next breath they say, and they're going to go on welfare, and we're going to be paying for their kids. It's like, wait, 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 wait. Do you, do you hear how illogical? So, but, right. of course, you know, hate and logic are mutually yeah. exclusive. So let's address one thing to close. Let's all comment on, on this. This podcast is going to be dedicated purely to race relations and understanding and not right. to politics. I agree. I think the minute that we inject a politician's name into it. As you and I both know from Facebook and people just seen that dog whistle yep. when you say something about this or that, you just bring up that name and just people just whoosh right in there. Yeah, I and I do think that really the whole purpose for this is just so we can try to maneuver a way to get along with everybody in a peaceful, respectful manner. Right. Well, and also and also get people to stop and listen because right. no one listens anymore. Yeah, no. we talked about that the other day. I saw that we don't actually listen. Yeah. We are already formulating an answer to what we think they're going to say or say we're not listening i'm looking forward to having uh having people on with us that we totally disagree with right so that we can number one get their side of it and and also be able to say i don't agree with what you're saying at all but i appreciate your taking the time to tell me about it because only through understanding what your what your stance is 
And you can re, you can respectfully agree, not really necessarily to disagree, but you can what you can respect that's that person's opinion, yeah. right? That's their thought and process, the, and that they believe in it. Perspective, yeah, yes, and that's yeah. their perspective. And you, JT, and I, we all came from the same town. Our overall perspectives, I think, are probably fairly similar. But when you dig deep, we grew up a little differently, all three of us, but with the same sort of Midwestern values that right. people think happen in the Midwest. Yeah. We're not farm kids. We're not farm kids like people think, but you know, people think of Indiana. Our perspective of what the world looks like is different than somebody who's from downtown Chicago or LA or somebody who's from truly, you know, like a farm town, you know, yeah. who has five, like you said, 500 people in it. Well, Our perspective is different. This has been Ethnic Stew, a new podcast on race and ethnic relations from the standpoint of parents and grandparents of biracial children. Next time, John, JP, and Jill will talk with an Iranian immigrant about the country of her birth, her family's experiences in the United States, and terrorism. Like Ethnic Stew on Facebook, check out our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and coming soon, ethnicstew.com.